We continue our Malachi series, heading to Malachi chapter 3. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, whether that be on a device or on a physical Bible open in front of you. It would be handy to have it ready as we walk through the passage together. Now, in our journey so far, we've really been following a conversation between uh, the people and God. It's like a Q&A session uh, between the people and God. What we have is the people asking a question and then God responding. Uh, we have read so far in chapter 1 and verse 2 the question of how have you loved us. God responds that the people were of Jacob, that they were a chosen people, the promised people, that were, they were not the people of Esau, that was a cursed nation. They were loved because they were chosen. And then we had a second question in chapter 1 and verse 6. How have we shown contempt for your name? And God responds by shaming their lame offerings and showing them that they were barely giving God the leftovers. We learned that God wants everything from us and he wants everything that we have to be committed to him. Then thirdly, we looked at the question in chapter 2, verse 17. How have we wearied the Lord? And the Lord responds by saying he has grown tired of the priests, tired of them convincing themselves that sin is okay and that God will accept sin. He is tired of their apathy. Now today we're going to handle really several questions, but it's all going to centre around chapter 3 and verse 8. How are we robbing you? What I want to show you today as we walk through the passage is that as we walk away from God in our hearts, it will lead to walking away from God in our actions. And more than that, our motivations will not even consider the ways of God. What we'll see is that hearts for ourselves will lead to actions for ourselves. And when we apply that to giving, hearts for ourselves will lead to a lack of giving for the Lord's work. And to help us, we're going to be walking through the whole of chapter 3 today. So open your Bibles, Malachi 3, and we'll start from verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there are three messengers in this one verse. We have the messenger, who is Malachi. He is the one whose name even means my messenger. He is the one who is going to bring the word of God, as we read now, to the people. But then we read that God is sending a messenger, one who will prepare the way. Now, if you know your Bible, that phrasing will remind you of a significant New Testament character, that being of John the Baptist. And the Lord has already hinted to John in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And notice the phrasing here, preparing the way, the same as it is in Malachi 3.1. In fact, John even quotes this when he says in Matthew 3.3, For this is he who has spoken off by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Lord is proclaiming through Malachi that his messenger, that future messenger of John the Baptist, will come and he will come to prepare the way of the Lord Almighty. Yet we also have a third messenger mentioned here, that of the messenger of the covenant. Who would bring news of this new covenant? Who would be the, the significant character that would feature in this new covenant? Who would bring this good news between God and the people? Well, it would be none other than Jesus himself. 400 years before John and Jesus appeared on the scene, Malachi 3.1 tells us that they will appear. What I also find particularly interesting in this verse one is that messenger in Hebrew could also mean angel. 
And there's this sense of eternal elements here, that the eternal message of God is given to the people that will be brought to them through John the Baptist with the eternal Lord Almighty being the new messenger of the covenant, the second Adam, the one who would secure the future for the people. This was eternally good news. This was the angel, the eternal element of the new covenant. And so from this one verse, we're seeing a whole host of future elements prophesied, given to the people of God through Malachi himself. Verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. We'll just pause there kind of halfway through verse three. Did you see how verse one was positive? There was a good day coming, a day of the new covenant, a a day of the eternal messenger, a, a day of good news. Yet here in verse two and three, there seems to be a negative connotation. There's another day that is foretold, a day of the Lord where the unholy won't even be able to stand in his presence. On this day, the Lord will purify and purge the sons of Levi, meaning the Lord is going to judge the priests. There is a day where the sinful behaviour of the priests in Malachi chapter 1 and 2, their apathy and their poor offerings to the Lord will be judged and the Lord will deal with them. To what end will this be? Well, we continue in verse 3. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. On this day where judgment will be given to the priest, the Lord will reinstitute sacrificial offerings, but in a new way, in a pleasing way to the Lord. And notice here to the, 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 the hint to the former years when sacrifices and offering were given, when they weren't polluted and weren't spoilt, but they were the very best for the Lord. Now, several commentators, including Warren Wearsby, would suggest that this is talking about the Lord instituting the Last Supper or communion or the breaking of bread, where Jesus instituted the remembering of his sacrifice, the the proclamation of his offering and the thankfulness to God that a believer should have and should show through salvation in Jesus. The ceremony of communion will be a symbol, like a sacrifice of what God has done for his people. And the Lord is telling us that on that day, the Lord will bring judgment to the sinners, specifically the priests here, and he'll bring glory through Jesus, through the act of communion. Verse five, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner or the foreigner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. On this day, prepared by John and found in Jesus, there will be a separation from evildoers who will be judged and the good who will be blessed. Those who have worshipped foreign gods, those who have committed adultery, those who have cheated, those who have oppressed, those who work against justice will be weeded out from among the people. However, the Lord is faithful and so the righteous, those found in him, won't be destroyed. Instead, they'll be set apart. To put it in plain English, the troublemakers, well, they're going to get a punishment. And those who are good in the eyes of the Lord, they'll find peace and rest in him. 
verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? The people were never truly keeping the law of the Lord. From the beginning, from its inception, the people departed from the God of the Old Testament and dishonoured his name. And really, this is the story of Israel, isn't it? The law of the Lord before him, uh, before them, and then a complete inability to be obedient toward it. And I think, sadly, this can often be the picture of the people today. The words of God before us, yet our unwillingness to truly honour it. Yet in the view of this messenger, that being John the Baptist, coming to prepare the way for Jesus, the Lord encourages the people to return to him. And in so doing, when they return, the Lord will bless them and dwell amongst them. And here is the mercy of the Lord. Even when all seems lost, he is willing to pave way and pave way of hope. The Lord uh, could have judged them then and there, yet he gives them a chance to humbly repent before him and seek after him. But sadly, the people did not take that opportunity. Instead, they chose to question the Lord and they said, how are we to return? And we need to understand the context here. The people are not looking for instructions. Rather, they are mocking the call of God. They don't believe they need to return for they don't believe they have ever left. Remember, their view has been that their sacrifices are good enough and that they are not evil, and rather they are good before the Lord. They arrogantly mock the mercy of the Lord and in so doing they miss out on the opportunity of salvation. And I think sadly that too is also true today, where so many of us believe that we are inherently good, believe that we're not sinning against God and therefore we mock the mercy of God and we don't find salvation in him verse 8 and here is where our kind of centered element of our application will be will man rob god yet you are robbing me but you say how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you and here is the critical crucial question posed will man rob god to rob someone is to take something that doesn't belong to you without permission and usually by force. Seemingly oblivious to their actions, the people ask how have they robbed God? And God's response is quite telling here, by taking his tithes and his offerings or his contributions. Now, what is a tithe? Well, a tithe literally means a tenth or 10%. And we see it established in Leviticus 27, where God gives the nation of Israel the, the Levitical law, the Mosaic law. In Leviticus 27 from verse 30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. God put it into law that the people were to give him 10% of all they had. Essentially, though, the Lord would give them all they needed and the people would give back to the Lord 10%. And this 10% is not from what is left, it is from the top. It's what they receive or what they already have. 10% goes to the Lord. We see it again in Numbers 18.26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. 
And if we continue to read throughout the whole Bible, you'll see tithing mentioned over 30 times in relation to giving to God. If that's what the tithe is, what is the offering or the contribution? Well, the tithe was the law, then the offering was a freely given donation above and on top of the tithe. Offerings could be burnt sacrifices to atone for sin in the Old Testament. It could be material to rebuild the temple as we've been reading this week in Ezra. Or it could be finances for a missionary as they spread God's word. And we read in Philippians 4 that Paul was greatly encouraged by the church as they responded to his need with a great offering toward him. And so when we read God's response in Malachi 3.9, because you are robbing me, we can understand this as the priests not giving their full tithes and offerings, instead keeping some back for themselves, in essence, stealing what belongs to God. And in response to this, the Lord curses the entire nation for they no longer deserve the privileged position that God granted them. Now we're going to come back to this matter later in our application. And so for now, let me just continue in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and there may be food in the house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see that I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, even though the people have failed God, it was not too late to repent from their sin and change their ways. The Lord in his mercy gives them an open door. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Bring it to God. Honour him in your giving and see what the Lord will do. The Lord will take care of the faithful. He will pour out blessings on them that give honourably. He will protect the people. He'll prove himself to be faithful towards his people. And when the nations around them see this, they'll be envious of the faithful relationship that the Lord has with his people. Now, we could move on here, but I want to have a word of caution. Isolated Old Testament passages are often used as examples of God's abundant reward for what is called faith giving. Uh, one passage that is often used to manipulate hearers into giving more is Malachi 3.10. Prosperity preachers highlight two points from this passage. Firstly, they tell hearers that they're robbing God by not tithing. And second, they assure hearers that God wants them to test him to give, to, to give them more as they give him more. But consider 3.10 in its proper context. The Israelites were robbing God by not giving food to the national storehouse that was used to feed the priests of Israel. So the priests were having to leave their duties and make up by farming to survive or by taking mediocre offerings so that they could eat too. Yes, they had become unfaithful, but this was because the entire nation had also become unfaithful to their giving. God therefore challenges Israel as to uh, how they should be giving obediently. If they did, he would reward them as he did in the past. He would protect them and guide them. And historically, this is a reference to how God is in his relationship with Israel. That devotion to God will bring about faithfulness from God to the people. God is not promising here that each of them, if they give a proper tithe every Sunday, then they're going to get back more than they give. 
God is promising the people of Israel that if they keep the law and remembering this is an old covenant here in Malachi, then he will bless them for doing so. Now that just reminds me of Lamentations 3.40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. You see, this is about us considering what our faithfulness is towards the Lord, not about giving to get. And I know we'll come onto this in our application, but I want to be very clear on this. Giving is not about getting. Malachi 3 is often misinterpreted by prosperity preachers. You do not give so that you can get. Giving is not about what you will get in return. It's about Christ and how you show your love for him. Therefore, giving will always be a matter of faithfulness rather than a matter of prosperity. But let's continue in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? It seems that no warning, no treaty, no mercy from God would shift the people from their arrogant ways. They defend themselves and once again mock God. How have we been arrogant? What have we said against you? Verse 14, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They compare blessing from God to earthly prosperity. Their view was that there is no profit in serving the Lord. They look around them and so many that are unfaithful seem to be reaping the reward of their evil actions. And so rather than being a faithful people, the people speak arrogantly against God. They no longer serve him. They no longer give to him. They no longer even care for his warnings. What we have here, certainly in verse 13 to 14, 15, is complete and utter rebellion from the people of God toward him. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. There is amongst the people of God, of course, those who will rebel. Yet there is also a group of individuals who seek to honour God. This is the remnant of the faithful people who fear God and who want to honour his name in all they do. And the Lord will turn to them and he will treasure them, not just on earth, but for eternity. They will be given a heavenly reward. They will be secure in the hands of God. And therefore, what we're learning from Malachi 3 is that there is always two groups of people, the unfaithful who God will punish through judgment, and then in these final verses, the faithful who will be rewarded after judgment. Now, as we come towards this end of Malachi 3 and really to our application, as I pointed out, the centre point of chapter 3 is that of the matter of giving. Those who gave biblically are those who are blessed in the eyes of God. Those who abuse the Lord and refuse to honour the command to give are those who are then judged. And I think it's important to draw out this application and really centre around this matter of giving. However, I do want you to see that there are other applications we could also go to. Uh, the conversations we have with God, our, our position before God, and ultimately the judgment of God. These are important applications. But what I want to really zone in on right now is the fact that the Lord called the people out on their refusal to give, on their dishonouring of God because they gave inappropriately. 
And I think one of the key questions that often come up from this passage is whether Christians should tithe. There is much debate over the answer to this question. But firstly, let me point out that only 25% of Christians in, in one particular study tithe. And of that 20%, 25%, it tends to be those older than 40 that give and those who have an average income or less that will give the most. Essentially, what we're seeing is 75% of Christians tend not to tithe from what they have and what they earn. And so this leads me to kind of a two-part answer to the question, should Christians tithe? The first part is that Christians are under no obligation to tithe. Tithing was set up under the old covenant when we lived under the law. Yet we no longer need to tithe to appease God in any form of way. Christ took the punishment deserved for us on the cross and because of that we now live under grace. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told we must tithe. We're not commanded in the New Testament to tithe. In fact, of the 36 times tithing is mentioned in the Bible, only six times is it mentioned in the New Testament. And it's often in the negative tone. For instance, you give me a tithe, but not your heart. And so we're not under obligation to tithe. Yet the second part of this answer is that Christians should tithe and tithe as a minimum. It's a bit of a confusing answer, isn't it? That we're not under obligation, but we should still do it. The fact is that Jesus, mainly during his Sermon on the Mount, did not abolish laws, but instead elevated them to a new level. Do not murder became do not even be angry towards one another. Uh, Do not commit adultery came uh, do not even look to another woman lustfully. Christ elevated the law from an issue of do's and don'ts to an issue of the matter of the heart. Tithing is exactly the same. Tithing is a good starting point to help you in giving, but it is that, it is a starting point. The Lord is now going to elevate in the New Testament the command to tithe. So let's consider that New Testament response at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, giving is not about do's and don'ts, it's an issue of the heart. We should listen to our hearts and without being legalistic, we should consider what we can give cheerfully. But consider Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our hearts are full of love for money and stuff and self, then we'll give what we have to and really no more. But if our hearts are full of the love of Christ, striving to that end goal in heaven, then we'll place our treasure there rather than here. We'll have no want to build up a nest egg here, but all the desire to see God's work continue and his kingdom expand. You see, Christians under obligation will give 10% and often no more. Whereas Christians who have a heart for the love of Christ, straining towards that heavenly goal, heavenly reward, will usually give 10% as a minimum because their treasure is not in money, stuff or in pleasure of this world, but instead it is hidden in Christ. If your love for Christ and your heart tells you to give 10%, then you give 10%. But equally, if your heart for Christ tells you to give 30%, then you are to give 30%. My one concern about giving in church settings is that we become legalistic over how much, how often and whether we are doing it or not. 
So to help us not to kind of fall into a trap of legalism, but rather keep giving a matter of the heart, I'm going to quickly go through eight principles of godly giving to help us spiritually and practically in the coming months and years. And don't worry, I am going to go through these relatively quickly. Uh, firstly, God has been generous with you. And uh, before anything, we need to remember John 3.16, that God generously gave us his son, who generously sacrificed his life in a cruel death so that we might be free. The fact that you're even sitting here today and have a lifetime of memories is because of the generous gift that God has given you. Secondly, giving starts to change you. When you start giving and being generous, it will change you. As you let go of the things that hold you back, you will see what faith in action looks like. As it says in Luke 6.38, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Giving brings joy. Giving brings peace. Giving brings hope. Giving ultimately brings blessing. Thirdly, God is looking for good stewards. We use the parable of the shrewd ma uh, manager in Luke 16, specifically verse 10, to justify the phrasing, we need to be good stewards. Uh, verse 10 says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. The issue with the phrase, we need to be good stewards, is that it is mainly used for justification for not giving and not spending on the Lord's work. We think being good stewards is about saving and safety. But being good stewards is about one thing and one thing only. Do not waste your wealth. Don't have it piling up in a corner, being in no use at all. Equally, don't burn it on a comfortable lifestyle. Consider Christ, consider your heart, and give what you are being called to give. That is good stewardship. Fourthly, genuine giving is sacrificial. We will all know about the poor widow that gave what she found in Mark 12, 42. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Giving it to God is about saying it would rather, you would rather have uh, the money going to further God's kingdom than into your own savings account or into a second car or a coffee from Costa or a new TV. God calls us to give up life in the society and instead follow him picking up our cross daily. The parable of the widow and her giving shows us that her love was so great she was willing to give all she had, trusting God completely. Our lesson is that we need to learn to trust God more in our giving. Trust that he will keep care of us when we give him all that we have. Fifthly, we're to give in response to a need. James 2.15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? We're taught in James to be on the lookout for the needs of others. And when we see that need, we don't just point out to that person, oh, they are in need. Instead, we do something about it. We clothe them, we feed them, we help them with their bills, we babysit for them, we cut their grass for them, we do whatever their need is, because that is what a giving heart does. And a, a word of caution here, this does not mean pointing them on to other charities and or other organisations. This means doing the giving ourselves, responding to the need with what we have, for the Lord has placed the need in front of you for you to take care of. Sixth, uh, we are to give and then we're to forget. 
I once was in a situation uh, where someone gave financially to the church, but because they didn't like what the church was doing in the next steps, it requested a check back from the church from all their giving from that year. It's pretty dreadful when you put it in that reality, but the fundamental mistake is that we, the individual gave and remembered what they gave. But we are called to give and then don't hold it against the person or the church. To not big yourself up by thinking you have done a great deed. Giving is not about you, but about God and about what God will do through it. And 1 Corinthians one thirty one tells us not to boast in ourselves, but rather boast in the Lord. And so therefore we're to give and then we're to forget, we're to move on to what God is calling us to do next. If we're still harking back to what we gave before, what we did before, what we served before, then we've missed the point. We've made it about us rather than about God. Seventh, giving is personal. We read in 2 Corinthians 8 that the church in Macedonia were so taken by the work of the Apostle Paul that they gave to him to help him. They gave him more than what was right. They gave him more than they could cope with because they loved Paul. They loved Christ and they wanted to see Paul work for Christ in the nations. So we're not to just toss money at issues. We're to pray over our giving. We're to seek God over our giving. We're to make it an issue of the heart, not of the mind. And we're to give personally. Again, far too often we give to major charities with no real personal interaction where giving is personal because it's giving to the Lord's work through an individual or through an organisation. And then eighth and finally, you are going to be tested with your giving. Finally, you will be tested in your giving. When hard times come, and trust me, we're probably in them right now, giving should not be the first thing you cut. God knows your needs and he will faithfully care for you. God calls us to trust him to provide what we need. In hard times, trust God and show the generous heart that he has called you to give. God once, in, uh, once was in those hard times when the world turned their back on him. They rejected him. They cut him up. They abused him and they killed him on a cross. Yet the generous gift of Christ is he did not remove himself from that situation. He gave his life even in the hard times. And therefore we're to stand the test in the hard times and be generous trusting God to care for our needs. My prayer today is that we will learn from the generosity of God through Christ and we will be cheerful givers. My prayer is that we'll see new ministries come out of the generosity of God's people. My prayer today is that we'll stop being tight lovers of money and become generous children of God. And in all my prayer today is that we'll be faithful children of God. We will be like that remnant in Malachi 3 that is faithful to the Lord in all we do into his name. That we won't be like the, the rebellious people of Malachi 3, but we will be faithful in our giving and showing that we have a generous heart to the Lord, for he has been generous to us through Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches. Help us not be that rebellious people. Instead, help us be that generous, faithful people to you. We pray that you would care for our needs, that we wouldn't fall into the trap of poverty or prosperity gospel, that we would just be trusting in the gospel of Jesus and that you would prompt us to give, to give generously, to give cheerfully and to give towards those who are in need. Father, we pray that we'll lean on your understanding and lean on your prompting. Lead us, Father, into this week, into hearts that are giving, minds that are giving, souls that are giving, so that we can bless others through the kingdom of God. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.